0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Channel 105, the podcast that's made by sections of English 105 at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm Graham Colbertson, the overall host for the series and the host for this episode, although the next few episodes you're going to hear are going to be from other classes with other instructors. So this is it for me this season. Well, except you will hear me at the end of this episode as well. This episode was made in a special kind of English 105, English 105i in which students can choose which discipline they want to focus on, whereas a traditional section of 105 gives students an introduction to a number of disciplines in the humanities, the sciences, the soft sciences, and possibly business. This one is 105I Health and Medicine, and the students quickly got interested in what might be called neuroscience or psychology, so this episode focuses entirely on states of mind. We've got segments coming up on... How emotional states affect memory, including the pandemic, what it's like in your brain when you're dreaming, how parenting affects the formation of your mind, and how LSD has fallen in and out and maybe back in again with the medical establishment. We're going to kick it all off, though, with an introduction to neurotransmitters in which you'll get to spend a day in the life of a personal trainer and see how her various activities are affecting and affected by the neurotransmitters in her mind. I hope you enjoy these segments. I'll see you at the end of the episode.
1: Our first segment on examining the states of mind is about a day in the life of a personal trainer featuring neurotransmitters. Wake up, get ready, go to work, and repeat. The cyclic nature of
2: everyday life seems to blur out everything else in the periphery. When life becomes a routine, it can be easy to view each day as just a checklist of items to be ticked off over and over again, like a clock ticking each second. But what if we zoomed into the mastermind behind our human experiences, the brain, during an average day? Specifically, what if we examine the chemicals at work inside the brain? We would notice that what we consider an average day is actually a highly orchestrated dance of neurochemicals that carefully perform a coordinated performance to give rise to our states of mind. Surely, there is nothing average about that. Let's explore some of these brain chemicals called neurotransmitters in the context of the events of one such average day. Hi everyone, this is Mother Manjanath. I'm Shay Kennedy, and I'll be playing the role of Damina. This is Ashley Wilkinson and
3: I'm Grace Collins.
2: We are joined by Dr. Shweta Parekh, Professor and Director of Undergraduate Neuroscience Research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Parekh will be providing more insight into neurotransmitters and their involvement in our brain to create our everyday experiences. Thank you Dr. Parekh for joining us. Before exploring the role of neurotransmitters throughout the day, Dr. Parekh will be explaining what neurotransmitters are. According to Dr. Parekh, neurotransmitters are small molecules that act as chemical messengers. So your body
4: actually can't function without them. And their job is to basically carry chemical signals or carry messages from one neuron to the next neuron.
2: As you can see, neurotransmitters are involved with a lot. And with that, let's begin diving deeper into neurotransmitters.
5: Hi, I'm Jamina, and I'm going to take you guys along with me throughout my day to analyze the influence of brain chemicals in our everyday lives. Wow, it is way too early to be up right now. Definitely should have skipped those coffees last night and gone to bed earlier.
1: Well, I guess it's too late to snooze again now. I have to get up. When Jamina woke up, she was in a very groggy mood. Well, why is that? Well, her grogginess was a result of a not-so-restful sleep that resulted from all the coffee she drank the night before. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that plays a huge role in sleep. It works alongside the neurotransmitter dopamine to ensure you get a quality sleep, which Jamina clearly was lacking today. Dr. Parekh, could you explain what serotonin is?
4: Serotonin plays an important role in regulating mood, and low levels of serotonin have often been associated with depression and anxiety disorders.
1: According to the 2018 article Serotonin by the Cleveland Clinic, serotonin is a neurotransmitter that helps to regulate your sleep-wake cycle by helping to regulate the production of melatonin, a key hormone that makes your body feel sleepy at night. When serotonin levels are low, it can cause insomnia. These low levels can be caused by things like stress, digestive issues, and caffeine. Jamina was clearly lacking serotonin because of the coffee she chose to drink the night before. The caffeine from her drinks inhibits serotonin production, so her body did not produce as much melatonin as it needed to ensure a restful sleep. So, Jamina, this would explain your unpleasant waking the next morning.
5: That's really good to know. I'm definitely going to have to start cutting down on my caffeine.
1: But lucky for her,
5: serotonin can also fix this problem.
1: Serotonin, also known as 5-hydroxytryptamine, is a neurotransmitter which also acts as a hormone in the body. It works by carrying messages from the brain to the rest of the body. It is important in regulating learning, memory, sleep, appetite, sexual behavior, and happiness. It is also often referred to as the feel-good chemical, because when it is at regular levels, you will feel more emotionally stable, calm, focused, and happy. We will get back to this a little later when Jamina takes on her morning workout.
5: Once I was finally able to drag myself out of bed, I picked up my phone to see what I had missed in the all-too-short time that I was asleep. Immediately, I saw an influx of comments and likes from my recent Instagram post. I was almost immediately flooded by a wave of happiness and confidence, a completely different feeling than the frustrated and groggy mood I was in just a moment before.
1: Sounds like a situation that those of us who use social media or instant messaging can relate to. Exactly.
2: It's such a satisfying feeling to open your phone and see unexpected messages or comments, a sensation that feels like a rush of happiness. When Jamina saw the unexpected comments and likes from her post, a neurotransmitter called dopamine was at play. Dr. Parekh, could you explain what dopamine is?
4: Dopamine plays an important role in regulating our mood, our motivation, and our movement. So it's produced in a lot of different brain areas, um, and predominantly it's um, important for functions like reward and pleasure and motivation. Uh, When dopamine is released in the brain, it can activate the reward pathway, which uh, can be associated with those feelings of pleasure and reinforcement. But it's also uh, involved in the regulation of movement and coordination. So that's why when we have a loss of dopamine neurons, it can be associated with movement disorders such as Parkinson's.
2: According to the 2020 article, mono means dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin beyond modulation. Switches that alter the state of target networks by Syed Asim Azizi, published in The Neuroscientist, Dopamine is a type of chemical called monoamine and is a neurotransmitter that acts as a messenger to relay information to networks of neurons in the brain. Dopamine-producing neurons form a network throughout the brain through sending neurons called dopaminergic projections to different areas of the brain.
1: That's crazy! How exactly does dopamine affect this complicated network?
2: Well, the way these networks are structured in specific areas of the brain allow dopamine to influence many brain functions including motor control, motivation, and attention. One function that is of particular interest is that dopamine is involved in creating reward-seeking behavior. Dopamine reward circuitry is also involved in social behaviors.
5: Now that I think about it, posting on Instagram is definitely a reward-seeking behavior. I totally sit around looking for positive reactions to my cool photos.
2: Told you, Mina, when you saw the unexpected comments and likes, there was a surge of dopamine in your brain. This dopamine activated the dopaminergic reward pathway in the brain, causing you to feel happy and confident after feeling groggy from waking up and having a lack of sleep.
5: Once I finished getting ready for my job as a personal trainer at the local gym, I blended up my protein shake and hopped in the car for work. As I was on the highway nearing my destination, a car just ahead of me swerved into my lane, nearly wrecking into my car. I panicked immediately and swerved my own car, just barely avoiding a massive accident. Just after saving myself from the wreck, I felt panic overtaking my body. I was on edge for the rest of the car ride to work. After
3: experiencing this nearly disastrous incident, Jemina was overcome with panic and anxiety. This is because the near accident kicked on Jemina's flight or fight response, which occurs in situations that we perceive as stressful or frightening. These stressful, frightening scenarios activate the sympathetic nervous system, and that triggers an acute stress response in
4: which norepinephrine plays a key role in.
1: Dr. Parekh, could you explain what norepinephrine is?
4: Norepinephrine is really important for our fight-or-flight response, so that's our body's natural response to stress or danger. Uh, So when the body perceives a threat, the sympathetic nervous system is activated, and that leads to the release of norepinephrine. Um, And this can increase our heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, and boost our energy and alertness. So norepinephrine um, generally regulates our attention and our arousal.
6: According
3: to the 2022 article norepinephrine from the Cleveland Clinic, norepinephrine is a chemical within the body that works as a neurotransmitter to produce a variety of responses regarding increased alertness, arousal, and attention. High volumes of norepinephrine can lead to feelings of euphoria, but is also linked to panic attacks, elevated blood pressure, and hyperactivity. Low volumes of norepinephrine is linked to various mental illnesses, including anxiety, ADHD, and depression, as well as other problems like headaches, memory problems, sleeping problems, low blood sugar, and low blood pressure. However, most notably, norepinephrine is responsible for the physiological responses associated with the fight-or-flight response which includes increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, and increased glucose levels. This response also begins breaking down fat in order to give the body the energy it needs to react.
2: I'm sure that's something that we all can relate to, especially when we experience a quick reflex. That's interesting that all those things are happening in the body at the same time.
3: This is what Jemina was experiencing during the near accident. Her fight-or-flight response was activated, which caused a release of norepinephrine. The release of that neurotransmitter was responsible for the feeling of panic she had due to all the physiological responses happening in her body. It also explains the on edge feeling for the rest of the car ride, as all of those responses were returning to their normal levels.
5: After arriving at work, I was relieved that I was still super early, because I desperately needed a workout after that stressful drive. I hurried over to the weights and started off my workout with a nice lift. After a solid 30 minutes with the barbell, I moved over to the treadmill to try to get a little runner's high. I did a nice two-and-a-half-mile run and finished my workout. As I stepped off the treadmill, I was almost overcome by positivity and motivation for the day ahead. I felt a lack of stress and an increase in confidence despite my very stressful morning.
2: What causes these feelings of motivation and positivity that we had discussed earlier with both dopamine and serotonin?
4: So exercise has been shown to have a bunch of different benefits for both physical and our mental health. Um, including reducing stress and improving mood. So the positive mood experienced after we exercise is thought to be due in part to the release of those n- neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine. So serotonin is involved in the regulation of mood. So low levels of serotonin, like I previously mentioned, have been associated with depression. But when we exercise, our body actually releases serotonin. Um, So exercise has been shown to increase that serotonin in the brain, and that can contribute to that feeling of well-being and happiness. And it works the same way for dopamine as well. So dopamine is involved in reward and pleasure. And exercise has been shown to increase the release of dopamine, which can um, kind of bring that sense of reward and motivation that we often experience after working out.
5: Wow, I definitely learned a lot about why I respond the way I do, depending on the scenario I'm involved in. Thanks so much for the information, Madara, Ashley, Grace, and Dr. Parekh. And thanks to our audience for coming along with me throughout my day and learning about the involvement of brain chemicals in various everyday situations.
1: That is all for the neurotransmitters. Next up is the effects of emotional states on the storage and recall of memory.
7: Hi, today we'll be discussing the prospect of emotions on Memory Recall. My name is Claire Holland.
6: I'm Isabella Larimore. And I'm Grena Ellsworth.
7: One of the brain's most important jobs is to encode our life story in the form of memories. Memories shape our perspective on the world as well as our identities, but just how accurate are they? Though emotions may seem like a soft and intangible side to the mental process, they are driving factors in many of the brain's functions. We were curious to see how emotions impact our ability to store and recall memories accurately. So we decided to turn to our peers to get some answers. We wanted to ask about a relatable event so that we could compare different answers
6: and what better topic to pick than the COVID-19 pandemic. We posed the question, could you briefly describe your ability to recall memories from the COVID-19 lockdown? Barely,
3: it's, it's all a blur. It's all meshed into like 20 seconds worth of like me sitting at home, not doing any of my class, um, and that's about it.
8: I mean, I can't really remember specific things, just more general things. I feel like that's just a part of my life that I really want to forget. I'm doing a really good job of forgetting it.
9: So,
10: Why can't anyone remember the months spent at home, isolated and waiting
6: for the return of normal life? We all had unique experiences of the lockdown, but nearly everyone could feel the general anxiety and fear that accompanied the chaos.
7: Could people's generally negative emotional states during COVID be a contributor to this overarching fuzziness of memories?
6: Science has indicated yes. According to a study conducted by Candela Sophia Leon and peers for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory Journal, anxiety during the pandemic not only distorted the content of episodic memories and subjects, but also their spatiotemporal ordering within the brain.
7: So you're saying that stress and anxiety actually alters our memories?
6: Yes, interestingly enough. The subjects in the study that were exposed to high amounts of stress had far poorer memory recall compared to the neutral group. However, though they were less accurate in recalling specific details, the anxious group tended to process events with a strong bias towards negative stimuli. In other
10: words, these subjects couldn't remember details like location and timing nearly as well, but they hyperfixated on any part of the memory that could be perceived as a threat or problem.
7: Okay, so this explains why people can't remember much about their lives under lockdown. But what is going on in your brain to allow emotional stress to have such power? Let's take a look at how we encode and process memories.
10: Rick Huguenier, director of Johns Hopkins Department of Neuroscience, explained the brain chemistry of memory very well. So essentially, memory comes from the formation of connections between neurons in the brain. These connections are referred to as synapses, and because you can have an unlimited number of them, uh, memory is really quite flexible. Synapses also strengthen as exposure increases, meaning the more you are being reminded of something in whatever manner, the stronger that something synapse is becoming.
6: So when teachers tell you that your repetition is the best way to boost memory retention, they are scientifically on point?
10: Yeah, exactly memory stored in the hippocampus of the brain and the more you stimulate some specific synapse from that region it becomes progressively accessible
7: so is it really only increased exposure to a memory that keeps it safe from slipping away or can there be other outside factors specifically emotions that can influence your brain chemistry when encoding and storing a memory
10: in a way yes memory functions are affected by emotional states but not directly. When a situation is emotionally stimulating to an individual, whatever the reason, their attention and sensory awareness can sharpen, which strengthens the encoding and long-term retention of the memory. This is to say also emotion can do the inverse and be impairing to the memory of a significant situation. The two opposite paths by which emotional stimuli can take in memory truly depend on the other environmental factors present, Overall though, does emotion have an impact on memory? Absolutely.
7: Let's talk a little bit about how memory recall works. To retrieve a memory, your brain has to revisit the nerve pathways created during the storing process. We know that memory is stored in the hippocampus, but the important factor we don't always look at is how the amygdala affects memory. In an article written by G. Richter Levin and others for the National Library of Medicine, the roles of the hippocampus and amygdala in our memory process is explained. The amygdala is responsible for the processing emotion and memory. This section of the brain works in accordance with the hippocampus to store important memories based on their emotional tags. Recalling memories that are highly emotional is generally easier to remember because they're personally considered a more important experience. However, accuracy is not always there.
10: Right, we know
6: emotions can't always be reliable in the spur of the moment. So this leads to the belief that when we aren't always recalling memories with detailed accuracy, what are some of the effects of this?
7: Well, there are many phenomena that we associate with dysfunctional memory recall. This can include episodes like deja vu.
10: With deja vu, it feels like you're reliving a scenario for a second time. It's hard to believe this is true, so there must be another explanation.
7: Right. In an article written for the magazine Science Focus by Thomas Ling, he further explains this concept through the research of Dr. Akira O'Connor. Déjà vu is a sort of anomaly, however, there are many speculations that this occurrence is a subconscious checkup of your memory recall. The familiarity of an event can trigger a response in your recollection system to compare and contrast what you're experiencing with something you've already experienced. Although in a form of conflict resolution, your brain can trick you into thinking it's all the same thing.
6: So in this case, the brain is searching for a conflict in our ability to decipher what has actually happened versus what we've experienced in the past. The two moments were so similar that distinguishing between them was creating a conflict. So the brain resolves this by simply filing the memories in the same category without really having a date or time stamp.
7: Correct. These types of dysfunctionalities are common when we endure levels of fatigue, shifts in hormone levels, and shifts in neurotransmitter levels, among many other possibilities. Any scenario like this can alter your brain's ability to problem solve and recall memories with accuracy.
10: Wow, there are a lot of factors to recalling memory. No wonder it's not always so easy.
6: Your brain likes to work smarter and not harder. Because your brain assigns memories with emotional tags as they are created and stored, these emotions also serve as a trigger for memory recall. Now now you are more likely to think about a movie that made you sad when you're already in a bad mood from a rainy day. More sad memories make you feel sadder and soon you can barely remember a day when you felt happier than this.
7: Your brain creates a cycle of sorts by continually reinforcing your emotions with memory recall from similar emotional states. This psychological phenomenon is called state-dependent memory.
10: As you can imagine, these state-dependent memory cycles can be devastating for people stuck in a depressive or anxious mood. Even though your brain is trying to work smarter and not harder by using emotions for memory categorization,
6: it can turn into a detriment to your mental health. We have little control over our brain's many functions, but learning to recognize a negative memory spiral can help us to put our feelings into perspective. When you realize your brain is behaving as a pessimistic narrator, you may find that things aren't quite as bad as they once seemed.
7: To bring this all to a satisfying ending, let's tie in the silver lining. Emotions are obviously a huge factor of memory and the way our brains store them. Fortunately, there is a possibility we humans can take control of this subconscious process and deliberately end a negativity cycle. There are ways we can trigger a positive response to a memory and store it in a brighter light. To exemplify this, we're diving into the headspace of a realtor. When showing a house, the important factor is making sure to leave a good impression, right? What better way is there to leave a good impression than with the scent of freshly baked cookies?
6: By baking cookies in the house before the walkthrough, the scent triggers a positive reaction from the buyers and the deal is done. In our case, the house is the mind and the transaction is our memory storage, and the cookies are a positive component attached to the memory. We have the power to recreate the scenario in our memories by recalling the positive aspects of our own experiences, leaving us with a happier recollection of the event.
10: Having said that, we do recognize how negative of an event the COVID lockdown was, which easily explains why we have a hard time recalling that stage of life. However, we can recognize that in a negative emotional state our brain will weigh the cons heavier than the pros. If we're willing to recognize and accept that is where our mindset is, we can make a conscious effort to change it. Learning to embrace our full emotional spectrum allows us the capability to understand and appreciate our experiences without hyperfixating on a specific emotion.
7: Though this isn't a one-fits-all solution to the emotional block of our memories, it may allow us to further review our recollection of events, as well as reflect on our experiences as we continue on in life. To remember fondly, we should embrace the moment fully, consciously, and optimistically.
6: continue our dive into states of mind, let's turn it over to The Dream Team, Leo's Dreaming Adventure.
11: Welcome to The Dream Team, a podcast where we explore the fascinating world of sleep, dreams, and the brain. I'm your host, Theo, joined by my brilliant co-host, Pongri.
12: Thank you, Theo. Today we have a special guest, Leo, who will share his incredible dream of traveling the global and how it connects with the science behind sleep and dreams.
11: That's right, Pongri. As we delve into Leo's dream, we'll uncover the secrets of our brain function during sleep and discuss sleep hygiene and habits. Hey guys, excited
9: to be here and share my dream. It felt so real and vivid, like an adventure through different parts of the world.
12: We can't wait to hear all about it, Leo. As we listen to your dream, we will break it down into various stages of the sleep cycle and explore what's happening in the brain during each of these stages. And
11: later in the show, we'll be joined by our dream expert, Chase, who will provide valuable insights into the fascinating realm of lucid dreams, prepared to be enlightened, entertained, and perhaps even inspired to prioritize a good night's sleep. This is the Dream Team. Let the adventure begin.
12: So, without further ado, let's embark on this journey into the mysterious world of sleep and dreams. Leo, please take us away.
9: So my dream began with me boarding a plane to an exotic destination. I remember feeling the excitement building up inside of me as the plane took off. The world outside the window looks so beautiful.
11: The sun just about to set on the horizon. That's interesting, Leo. You're describing what sounds like the onset of your dream, which corresponds with the initial stages of sleep. As we enter the first stage of sleep, known as N1, our brain waves start to slow down from the high-frequency beta waves of wakefulness to the slower theta waves. This is a light sleep stage, where you still may be aware of your surroundings, but gradually drift off.
12: Right, and as you progress into the second stage of sleep, N2, your body temperature drops and your heart rate slows down. Brain activity during this stage is characterized by a small burst of electrical activities called sleep spindles and kick complexes. This help consolidates memories and protects sleep by blocking external stimuli.
9: Fascinating. Well, as the dream continued, I found myself on a bike, cycling through a picturesque countryside. I could feel the breeze on my face, smell the fresh air, and hear the birds singing. It was incredibly vivid and immersive.
11: That's likely because you've now entered the third stage of sleep, known as N3, or slow-wave sleep. This stage is characterized by delta waves, which are the slowest and highest amplitude brain waves. It's during this stage that the brain consolidates memories and carries out restorative functions for the body. In fact, Leo, the vividness of your dream could be a result of the increase in blood flow to the brain during this stage.
12: And uh, it's not uncommon for people to express vivid dreams during N3 although they are more common during the REM stage, which we will discuss shortly. The content of your dream, like cycling through the countryside, might be influenced by your personal experience and memories.
9: I see. Well, after cycling for a while, I came across a small village where I decided to rent a car. The car was unique. It was a convertible with an unusual paint job. I drove through the village, taking in the
11: sights and sounds, feeling a sense of freedom, joy. At this point, you've likely entered the rapid eye movement stage, which is also called REM sleep stage, which is when most dreaming occurs. During REM sleep, the brain is very active, with brainwaves similar to those experienced during wakefulness. This stage is characterized by rapid eye movement, hence the name, and temporary muscle paralysis to prevent us from acting out our dreams.
12: Exactly, and it's during REM sleep that our brain consolidates emotional memories and processes complex information. The vividness and the complexity of your dream during the stage could be attributed to the activation of various brain regions such as the viral cortex for the vivid imagery and the limbic system for the emotional content.
9: That's amazing. I never realized how much was happening in my brain while I slept. Anyway, in the dream, I continued driving until I reached a coastal city. I decided to board a ship and sail across the ocean. The journey was calm and peaceful, stars shining brightly overhead. And then suddenly, I found myself flying through the sky, soaring like a bird.
11: What a fascinating dream, Leo. As we mentioned earlier, the vivid and complex nature of your dream is likely due to the REM sleep stage. However, it's important to note that throughout the night, we cycle through the various sleep stages multiple times. Each cycle lasts about 90 minutes, and as the night progresses, the duration of REM stages increases. This could explain the evolution and progression of your dream.
12: Moreover, the flying sensation you experienced might be related to the temporary muscle paralysis that occur during REM sleep. As your body is an essential immobile, your brain might be incorporated this sensation into your dream narrative.
9: Wow, I never knew that. It's incredible how our brain and body work during sleep. So after flying for a while, I found myself in a bustling city filled with people from all walks of life. I mingled with the crowd, absorbing the energy and vibrancy around me. I remember feeling a sense of belonging, connection with everyone I encountered.
11: This part of your dream may represent a reflection of your emotions, social connections, and experiences. The brain's limbic system, which is responsible for processing emotions, is particularly active during REM sleep. This could explain the emotional richness of this part of your dream.
12: And as we mentioned earlier, the brain uses sleep to consolidate memories, process information, and problem solve. The social interactions and sense of connection you experience in your dream could be your dream's way of processing your real-life relations and experience. That makes a lot of sense.
9: Eventually the dream began to fade, and I found myself waking up, feeling refreshed and rejuvenated.
11: That's a great way to wrap up your dream, Leo. It shows that you had a good night's sleep, going through all the necessary sleep stages, and allowing your brain and body to restore and repair themselves.
12: Absolutely. And it highlights the importance of maintaining good sleep hygiene and adopting healthy sleep habits. Ensuring that you get adequate and restful sleep is essential for your overall well being, cognitive function, and emotional health.
9: I couldn't agree more. Thanks for helping me understand the science behind my dream and the importance of sleep. It's truly been an eye
11: opening experience. You're welcome, Leo. And speaking of eye-opening experiences, we have a special guest joining us now. Let's welcome Chase, a UNC undergraduate with a research interest in dreaming, who's here to discuss the fascinating topic of lucid dreams. Welcome, Chase.
13: Thanks for having me, Theo. I've been listening to Leo's Dream, and it's a great example of the rich and complex narratives our brain can create during sleep. I'm excited to dive deeper into the world of dreaming, particularly lucid dreams, with all of you.
12: We are looking forward to it, Chase. As we explore lucid dreaming, we will uncover more about the dream's incredible abilities and the potential for self-discovery, personal growth, and even problem-solving that these dreams can offer.
11: Chase, can you start by explaining what lucid dreams are and how they differ from regular
13: dreams? Absolutely, Theo. Lucid dreams are a unique type of dream where the dreamer becomes aware that they are dreaming while they are still asleep. This awareness allows the dreamer to consciously control and manipulate the dream environment, characters, and narrative. The main difference between lucid dreams and regular dreams is this element of self-awareness and control.
12: That's intriguing. How does the brain function during lucid dreams, and how does it compare to the brain activity during regular dreams?
13: Great question, Pangri. In a lucid dream, the brain exhibits activity patterns that are distinct from those seen during regular dreams. Although the dreamer is still in the REM sleep stage, certain areas of the brain, such as the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for self-awareness and executive functions, become more active during a lucid dream. This increased activity allows the dreamer to recognize that they are dreaming and exert conscious control over the dream.
9: That sounds amazing. Are there any practical applications or benefits to lucid dreaming?
13: Certainly. Lucid dreaming can have various practical applications and benefits. For example, it can be used as a tool for personal growth and self-discovery, as it allows the dreamer to explore their subconscious mind and confront their fears or unresolved issues. Additionally, lucid dreaming can be a powerful creative outlet, offering artists, writers, and musicians the opportunity to tap into their imagination and generate new ideas. It can also be used for problem solving, as the dreamer can consciously explore different solutions and approaches to a particular issue. That's incredible. Can anyone learn to lucid dream? And if so,
11: how can they achieve it?
13: Yes, most people can learn to lucid dream with practice and patience. There are various techniques that can be used to induce lucid dreams, such as reality testing, which involves regularly questioning whether you're awake or dreaming throughout the day and the mnemonic induction of lucid dreams technique, otherwise known as MILD, where the dreamer repeats a mantra or intention before sleep, such as the phrase, I will be aware that I am dreaming.
12: It's fascinating to think about the potential of lucid dreaming and how it can be harnessed for personal growth, creativity, and problem-solving chase. Thank you for sharing your expertise on this captivating subject.
13: It was my pleasure. I'm always excited to discuss the world of dreams and help others unlock the potential of their own subconscious.
11: And that wraps up our exploration of sleep, dreams, and the amazing world of lucid dreaming. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Dream Team and that it's inspired you to learn more about the incredible power of your own mind.
12: That's all for us. Sweet dreams and happy adventures. Next up is parenting, how you are raised to affect your mind.
14: Just a quick disclaimer before we begin, we will be talking about our own experiences, but we will also be including fictional and dramatized anecdotes in this section of the podcast. Don't be mad.
15: Hello, everyone. I'm Lada. I'm Isabella. I'm Sage. And I'm Abby. And on the topic of different states of mind, I feel like the first thing that affects the way you think and perceive things is how you were raised and what your household and childhood was like.
16: It definitely is. And there's actually research that confirms this. Um, according to research by a world-renowned psychologist, Diana Baumrind, this is the research that actually made her famous. There are four distinct categories that parenting styles fall into. And that is not to say that they can't be cohesive. You can't have multiple parenting styles. But in the world of psychology, they have four distinct categories. And those include authoritarian, authoritative, permissive, and uninvolved.
17: Okay, so now that we have the basics, let's get to, to the juicy stuff.
16: Oh my god.
17: <laughs> how was everyone's childhood? And also, like, like, how did the way you were raised affect how you adjusted to college?
15: Yeah, so for me, I was raised with pretty authoritarian style parents um, for the majority of my childhood, and authoritarian style parents are parents who are strict, they have negative punishment, no room for mistakes, they're the least nurturing of the four styles um but also have high expectations and the kids seem socially best in school settings but also show high levels of aggression shyness and lack of social skills and poor self-esteem um so I had that type of parent for the majority of my childhood they were very strict with me a lot very little room for mistakes I wasn't really allowed to do things that most of my friends were allowed to do I um my mom had an app on my phone that would show her all my messages real time like wait come again yeah yeah you heard that. It was of privacy. It, it was a lot. Um, but once I got older, like mid-high school, I started standing up for myself, and my parents took that personally and then decided to become much more uninvolved. Um, so for those last two years that I was at home, I had more uninvolved parents. I and mean, it was at that point that I gained my independence and learned a little bit more about myself and my identity. So I guess I've had a mix of the two extremes of parenting. Very um, extreme. Yeah, the two very <laughs> extremes. Um, so when coming into college, it was interesting because I had already had a few years more uninvolved parents parenting. So the actual adjustment to living on my own and caring for my own basic needs was pretty easy for me. I had already been managing my finances to a certain extent, you know, and then like basic things like doing my laundry, making sure I am and getting to places by myself on my own. All of that was pretty easy for me to adjust to. However, I still struggled with other aspects of transitioning to college because since I did grow up with more authoritarian parents, I'm a pretty anxious person and I set very high expectations for myself and expect that others also have high expectations for me. So when things don't go exactly according to plan or I mess something up with my schedule or my classes or anything i feel like a complete failure and it's very hard for me to recover from that trust me
16: everyone messes up on this schedule (laughs) here i'm already
15: doing it right now but yeah along with that there's a paper published in 2021 called authoritarian parenting effect on children's executive control and individual alpha peak frequency which is a total mouthful but it essentially talks about how this type of parenting affects kids at a neurobiological level in the brain and it demonstrated how kids that had authoritarian parents tended to have lower executive control, which means that they struggle to regulate their thoughts, organize, and manage their time. And I definitely found that to ring true during my childhood and also during my adjustment to college. So that's me.
14: Me personally, I was raised by uninvolved parents, meaning they basically just gave me all the necessities, but beyond that, I was pretty much left alone.
16: part <laughs>
14: <laughs> I had very few like rules or expectations for my parents, and they didn't really play like that major of a role in a lot of like, my decision-making. Being like, unsupervised for a lot of my free time when I was younger made me pretty self-sufficient at a young age, and there wasn't really somebody to like discipline me most of the time, so I never really had like a fear of punishment or anything that I've heard a lot of other people talk about. I also didn't have to worry about my parents like influencing what I did in school or what I was going to study. They left a lot of that kind of decision to me, and a lot of that freedom was really nice, but it also has its drawbacks. Uh, research shows that a lot of people who are raised with like uninvolved parenting may have more problems related to emotional regulation and communication in relationships Uh which is definitely something I found to ring true coming to college also they just have a lot of trouble like adjusting to life that isn't just like unsupervised or by themselves I will say when I came to college I noticed that a lot of the things that like laundry or keeping myself on my own schedule and stuff were things that I was a lot better at
16: oh I (laughs) died my white dresses (laughs) The
14: first two weeks I was here it was terrible. Good Lord. No, but I noticed I was a lot better at those kinds of things just cuz I'd had a lot more practice doing them. And I also again had a lot of freedom in what I wanted to do in college. There was no pressure to study certain majors or go into certain fields for my parents like a lot of other people have had. Um, oh, I wish.
16: I personally feel like them the opposite of you, Sage, if you can't tell. Um <laughs> um but I kind of I see my parents as my best friend, at least my mom. That's a guy, so there's only so much we can talk about before it crosses <laughs> the line. Um, but in whole, that's what per- permissive parenting is. Their goal is to be your bestie, which was so quirky of my parents. Oh, so quirky. They're ahead of their time, I would say. <laughs> um, but I did. I grew up feeling very loved, at least when it came to like physical attention and time with my parents. Um, my parents were also strong believers in uh, talking things out instead of giving me punishment. So I was never really grounded or spanked or anything like that which I think really aided in our relationship and is why me and my mom at least are so close is because there's not that resentment there. Um, however, what I started noticing was when I got into high school and started taking grades in school more seriously is that my parents didn't care as much as I would have liked, I would say, just because that wasn't how they were estimating my worth or maybe they were kind of scared to put those rules in because they didn't want to lose our friendship Guess we'll never know, but in the sense of grades, that they didn't matter, and that's when it hit me that I didn't have like traditional set boundaries with my parents, and I could literally do whatever I wanted, whether that be on my phone, eating whatever, and or just leaving the house and going somewhere. Like essentially, I did not have to run a plan by my parents. However, that's not to say I didn't go through ups and downs and make bad decisions. Um, but those are in the past; they're gone, um, hopefully, and. It's nice that I have this natural God-given form of anxiety, so I try hard in school, which has allowed me to get here. Um, and I think that's why when I got to college, I wasn't, it wasn't really hard for me to adjust aside from the fact that I wasn't around my parents all the time. I mean, I wasn't gaining the freshman 15 like everyone else was because no one had ever limited my eating at home, and they weren't doing it here either, so it was fine. And it was like kind of the first time I had never, I wasn't the biggest in the friend group, which was kind of crazy for me. And then when it came to having the freedoms, that wasn't really a big of a change. I just had friends that were actually allowed to go hang out with me now. And with it being so similar to growing up, my time management has pretty much stayed the same. But a lot of that time management was self-taught. Thank God I had rules set in place for myself or I don't know if I'd be here.
17: <laughs> okay, I cannot imagine having no rules at all.
16: It was something.
17: Hell, tell you. <laughs> I was raised like an authoritative style, and like, it's very nurturing, it's very loving, I felt very loved as a child, and still do, however, there are a lot of rules and a lot of boundaries that they set, however, I did get to challenge them, but it's all good. (laughs) So, like, communication was the biggest thing in my household, it was literally what it was built upon. All we did was like be like hey i don't really like how you're doing this can we change that and then be like okay and we would work around that however when i got to college everything changed probably not for the better
16: oh god you're like i'm not doing the homework now mom
17: yes i'm like no i'm like it just occurred me, to me i can <laughs> do whatever i want now and that was insane of course i had like pressure from my parents like going into college being like i wasn't i definitely had to fight back to get an art major i wanted because they thought it was kind of a silly major, but that's a whole nother topic. But once I got to college, it, everything just off the table. I ate whatever I want. I gained the freshman 15. I, <laughs> I could still do like my laundry and be responsible because research has shown that if, like people who are raised in authoritative relationships, they tend to be a little bit more responsible than their like other peers. However, When you have self-control, but then you're given the keys to the kingdom, there's a pretty good chance that it's going to go a little haywire. Yeah. But I think the hardest part, transitioning into college, was the fact that I was not like living with my parents anymore, and like I was very, very close to them. Still am. But I ended up going home most weekends because I was just so, not lonely, but I just missed them so much because we were so close. But (laughs) having no rules... Not very good fit for me.
16: Well, I think it's interesting you say that because I'm pretty sure research says that here in America, at least authoritative is like the best overall parenting style. And I think that's interesting when you compare what all of us had in common to yours.
15: It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also important to point out the biological and cognitive effects that parenting cells have on our brains because when we talked about doing a podcast on this topic, we looked for some biological research behind childhood environments and the effect of your state of mind, and there's actually a professor at Stanford University that did a research study based on the mental health of Mexican immigrants, and his findings are cohesive with that all types of childhood trauma and stress. Um, they concluded from previous research where they explained that early life stress leads to behavioral problems in children and um, just the background on that. The key point that was made was the explanation of the stress hormone cortisol and when children go through trauma they experience high levels of stress and high levels of cortisol and cortisol s- stops brain development and connectivity specifically in the frontal lobe and the hippocampus and that leads deals with learning and self-regulation and emotions so it shows that the science behind why as kids grow older and become adults they might show signs of anger depression and other side effects because your brain has literally just not fully developed in these situations so you lose certain skills
16: and all that anxiety from your authoritarian parents have (laughs) led to your major anger skills
15: yes
14: (laughs) yes uh parenting styles also have effect on mental health research has shown that in general children raised by parents with authoritarian permissive or uninvolved parenting styles have higher rates of anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues.
16: Wow, guys, this was super interesting. So parenting styles definitely affect incredibly important aspects of our lives. It's also important to think about the nurture versus nature debate in this context. Since these styles of parenting fall under nurture, I wonder how much of the effects on our personality are related to the parenting effects, how much are related to our environments, our genetics, and even other outside influences. However, I also think it's important to note that we all grew up in very different households, but we are all here in the same place. It's just yeah, it's just kind of like we might respond to situations a little differently, but we all ended up in the same place. And I think it's very interesting to see how this plays a role in mindset, states of mind, and brain function all right that is it for our segment and how parenting affects your state of mind next we have last but not least the lsd group
18: thank you parenting um this is how lsd has changed minds and science with land jack and miller So, uh, today, basically, we're going to be talking about uh, lysergic acid diethylamide, um, but you've probably heard about it as LSD or acid.
8: Yeah, so I know a little bit about LSD, but what is so revolutionary about it?
18: Yeah, so I I was just about to tell you, and I'm going to tell you about a story of a student named Paul, or as he's known, Pebble Rock, uh, from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
8: So, I imagine it will be about Pebble doing LSD?
18: Yeah. Like... Definitely, but it's a lot more complicated than that, I would say. Um, Pebble was in his sixth week of uh, school in his first semester at UNC, and basically um, the adjustment was extremely difficult. Uh, Pebble had always been depressed uh, to a degree with antidepressant medication uh, never doing uh, enough for him. Um, and after coming to school in the fall, his depression actually became uh, a lot worse uh, living on his own. Um His uh, hometown support had fractured, and his girlfriend from home had actually broken up with him right before the school year began. On top of everything else, he'd received most of his midterm grades a few days ago, and his grades were nowhere near uh, where they were in high school. Thinking that he needed to improve his grades if he wanted to feel better, Pebble dragged himself out of bed in the morning and made his way to the Introduction to Psychology course.
8: Wow, seems like Pebble is going through a really hard time right now.
18: Yeah, yeah, definitely, I would say. But I I, I think it will get better. So uh, Pebble finally makes it to his class and sits down next to his classmate, Gru. And today, Pebble looked especially sad, so Gru tried to uh, initiate a conversation with him in hopes of cheering him up.
19: What's up, Pebble? How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, how, how was your weekend?
20: It was good. I got some acid, and it was fun. Honestly, I think you've got to try it. It was fun. I
8: can definitely get you a deal. Let me
20: know if you're interested, and I can hook you up.
19: Yeah, for sure, bro. I'll let you know.
8: That night, Pebble went back to his dorm room with curiosity filling his mind. The very thought of a substance that could completely dissociate his mind from current society and his numerous problems really intrigued him.
18: Yeah, so with that, he gained this newfound determination to learn more about LSD and went straight to Google attempting to familiarize himself with uh, this foreign substance.
8: Yeah, so Pebble first stumbled across LSD's association as a mind-altering drug. He learned that, specifically, it acted on the human's central nervous system. Therefore, it has the ability to alter his mood, behavior, and whole perception of the world.
18: Yeah, but he was, like, honestly still not very satisfied, so he decided to dive uh, a lot deeper onto LSE's actual effects on the brain. And uh, he discovered that, the, that this psychedelic drug binds to specific cell receptors, altering how the body responds to uh, serotonin. Um, the article stated that serotonin is a very important neurotransmitter that regulates like emotions, moods, and perceptions, thereby by uh, binding to these cell receptors, the neural pathway is modified, creating a distorted, these distorted visual um, hallucinations and sounds that LSD is so known for.
8: Yeah, reading on, he also learned that there are two major outcomes when taking LSD, what's known as a good trip and a bad trip.
18: Yeah, so as I was going to say, like a, a good trip is like, um, is... When, what happens when the user is filled with this like um, immense feeling of euphoria or an intense state of happiness. And like the kind of trip that like also gives like the users the desired feeling of like a disconnect from reality, essentially like floating. Um, and like other commonalities include perceptions of invincibility with fear of nothing.
8: Yeah, so these findings excited um, Pebble. And as he continued to look through the articles, he looked into what is called a bad trip. So unlike the good trip, bad trips are often associated with unpleasant and frightening terrors. Um, All these emotions flood the brain at once, which usually overstimulate the user and therefore increases anxiety in uh, most participants. Um, These perceptions of reality may quickly exceed the slightly altered state, becoming extremely distorted in shapes and sizes and giving Pebble no reference to... uh, familiar society at all
18: yeah definitely and like in the very like extreme cases i would say like users may feel like so out of control um that like um like i like this complete like disconnect from society um causes self-harm to actually be a plausible idea in their altered state um and these like suicidal thoughts actually may turn into actions when all common judgment is lost So, like, now that he's, like, equipped with all this, like, new information about, like, this drug, um, Pebble attempted to look to other expert testimonies to hopefully give him the confidence he needs to take LSD.
8: Yeah, so in his inquiries, Pebble stumbled across Michael Pollan, who's author of How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. So while reading this book, it uh, highlights how the resurgence— of interest in these drugs, specifically LSD, and their use in um, therapeutic settings to treat depression, addiction, and uh, the fear of death in some people that have cancer.
18: Yeah, so, I mean, like, throughout his readings, he was, like, really, like, astonished to learn that there had been, like, uh, over, like, a thousand peer-reviewed studies of psychedelics, like, before the um, mid-60s, 40,000 research subjects, and six international conferences on LSD conducted by psychiatrics and a psychologist?
8: Uh, Yeah, so furthermore, he learned that uh, these sessions let your mind and the drug guide you through this journey, taking you on a kind of movie, um, which to say if you're a cancer patient, you may confront your fear of cancer and get some further ideas about your mortality or immortality in some cases. Um, It has the power to give users what is called a mystical experience.
18: Yeah, so essentially like these writings and these uh and this research gave Pebble like a different outlook on a drug and um and gave him essentially like this newfound hope that this um that this psychedelic had the potential to cure um his problems as they've been found to do so in many other patients.
8: Exactly. So Pebble wasn't just satisfied with these online articles and he wanted to broaden his view on the the true possibilities that LSD um could give him so he reached out to his psychology professor in hopes of getting another credible point of view
19: hey professor swanson um i was just kind of curious if you could uh kind of explain to me the history of lsd just uh, i was just kind of interested sure have you heard of the
20: mk ultra investigations
19: i've not please tell me more professor
20: well lsd's relationship with the greater population had been rock has been rocky over the past few decades In the mid-1900s, there was a series of secretive CIA-funded experiments with largely terrifying conclusions. Project MKUltra was led by the direction of agency chemist and poison expert, Sidney Gottlieb. MKUltra was a covert CIA program specifically in the 1950s to 70s that aimed to develop the drug's mind-altering properties for brainwashing and psychological torture. The secretive project was funded by the CIA at flagship schools across the nation, such as Columbia University and Stanford. And ultimately, the studies concluded that the drug was deemed too too unpredictable for use in counterintelligence.
19: Wow, that's crazy. I had no idea LSD had such a thorough and secretive
18: past. Yeah, so after coming to these, like, various conclusions, um... Like the next day, uh, Pebble attended his psychology class with like this newfound elation at the possibility of like removing some of his negative feelings and behaviors, and Pebble decided to ask Gru if he could get him some LSD, and Grew happily uh, obliged. So essentially, Grew eases his nerves, um, but cautions him about like a friend who had an extremely negative experience with the drug, and uh, he gave Pebble also some several instructions on how best to prepare. Um, before taking um, LSD, hydrating, eating well, and making sure like he he is in a very safe environment to prevent any um, significant disorientation when taking uh, the drug. So uh, he grabs he's grabbing the drug. He places it in his mouth, sits back in his desk chair, and closes his eyes. So the white brick wall of Pebbles' dorm began to distort itself, with the stresses and anxiety seemingly forgotten. He gazed at the wall. The color shifting between shades of white and yellow. Wow, it's never looked so bright before.
8: What Pebble was experiencing is what researcher Robin L. Carhart described as a state of waking consciousness.
18: Yeah, so as you said, waking consciousness is essentially like this psychedelic state marked by prototypical high uh, entropy states of consciousness. Um, So this highlights the complete, uh, complete changes in color perception seen uh, when individuals use psychedelics such as LSD as seen with pebble and uh, the wall beginning to distort itself
19: I feel so much lighter as if all my problems doubts fears and pressures are manageable I can see them for what they really are I actually feel
18: like myself again my thoughts can't control me I am worthy of being alive the feeling of being able to identify one's problems and uh, innermost feelings are brought up in the same article which highlights psychedelic drugs have the potential to increase characteristic criticality within our consciousness, suggesting that it is the ability of psychedelics to disrupt stereotype patterns of thought and behavior by disintegrating the patterns of activity upon which they rest uh, that accounts for the therapeutic potential. This principle applies that the brain um, that a brain at criticality may be considered a happier brain.
8: Yeah, so Pebble continues to feel the, this sense of euphoria as the LSD helps relieve all his anxiety and depressive thoughts, culminating in what one would consider a good trip.
19: Exactly. I, uh, I really need to thank Grew. Like, this, is, this has changed everything for me. I can finally conquer my fears.
8: Pebble's surroundings continue to get softer in his eyes as he goes back into reality.
18: That has been How LSD Has Changed Minds in Science with Elan, Evan,
20: Jack, and Miller.
18: I'd like to take the time to thank you all for listening and um, introduce our next speaker. And welcome back our next speaker, uh, Dr. Culbertson. Thank you very much.
0: All right, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed listening to it and putting it together. Thank you so much to all of the students in that section of English 105i. And goodbye for me for this season of Channel 105. Don't worry, I will be back in the fall of 2023. I hope you're subscribed to the feed, though, because the next episode is going to be about belonging and isolation. It's from another English 105 instructor, Professor Steve Gotzler. And it's called Together Alone.